America had also experienced an outbreak of the tongues phenomenon during the same period as the Welsh Revival. The person responsible for introducing the practice as a formally stated doctrine was the Reverend Charles Fox Parham of Kansas. It was Parham who first singled out glossolalia as the only evidence of having received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and he taught that it should be part of normal Christian worship rather than a curious byproduct of religious enthusiasm. Parham's teaching laid the doctrinal and experimental foundations of the modern Pentecostal movement. It was Parham's ideas preached by his followers that produced the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, and with it, the worldwide Pentecostal movement. And welcome everyone to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, here today to talk about the history of Pentecostalism. Zelwyn, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. Uh, winter seems to have receded a little bit this far north, and we actually have a fall now, so it's kind of nice to have a slightly warmer day again. So I can't complain. Enjoy your two weeks of fall. <laughs> 24 hours more like, but... Fall has settled here on the prairie of Illinois, and harvest is soon coming to a close, probably a couple more weeks in the field for our for our farmers out there. On the you know two trees we have out here, uh, the leaves are starting to change, and so that's good to see. A lot of pumpkins on people's porches and things like that. It's a good weather and a and a good time to be alive. You know the Lord has blessed us with you know a temperate climate, and I like that. I thought you had more trees than I did, Willie. Well, you know I could, I don't have to travel as far to see another one as you do. You know <laughs> they are a rare sight. Do you ever Google foliage just to remember? Well, I grew up in this area, so they're always strange and unusual to me anyway. So. Are you claustrophobic around buildings taller than th- three feet? <laughs> when the trees come all the way up to the road. Stories, that's what I mean. Yeah. When the trees come all the way up to the road, I'm basically taking my <laughs> right. life. If there's a home on each side of the street, do you feel short of breath? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> all right. Well... Pentecostalism, Zelwyn, that's going to be a fun one. We're going to take a look at the roots of Pentecostalism and really follow it you know, through its, its American history. That's going to be entertaining to try to do in just one episode, but... I we'll, think we can do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll do find out. We can. <laughs> yeah, if you guys want us to do a full hour on any of these guys we're going to talk about, we're happy to do it. It's so strange. American religious history since the 19th century has just been very interesting. So many characters, and we're going to get into several of them today. You're going to to hear some weird stories, but that's what makes it fun, right? How we got where we are today. Yeah, you don't want the the, just the bread and butter guys. You got to hear about the the wackadoodles that make it life entertaining, at least to read with history. But right, absolutely. But with that in mind, Willie, uh, the first question, of course, that we need to answer is, is why study Pentecostalism at all? Why do we want to even delve into this subject? Right. Uh, well, it's simple. Pentecostalism is arguably the fastest growing religious movement, at least within Christianity. It's something that whether you realize it's Pentecostal or not, it is near you. It is all around you. It is, I promise you, somewhere in your churches at least as far as members are concerned. Somebody's reading this. Somebody is influenced by this. And dare I say, unfortunately, perhaps, Pentecostalism has creeped into some chancels and pulpits. Do you think that's fair, Zelwyn? Do you have any any thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's fair, because when you're dealing with a movement as influential as Pentecostalism, it is something that either has come into churches in what's commonly called charismaticism, and trying to actually influence other groups kind of more indirectly. Or, you know, many of the modern Pentecostal authors are often very popular. They're the kinds of authors that get read a lot. You see their, you know, sometimes you see their books in public settings, like Barnes & Noble or, you know, in bookstores like that. So the influence that Pentecostalism has is admittedly quite large. And having a better understanding of where it's coming from Uh, is going to help us to be able to respond to it and to answer any questions that people might have about it. Certainly, certainly. 
So with regard to Pentecostalism, then, uh, why, do, why do you think it's so, so popular? That's a great question. You know, what, what makes any one movement so popular as opposed to another? It is a kind of a democratic, I guess, if you want to put it that way, a very down-to-earth, ground-up kind of movement in many ways. And it does, and and I think in some ways, appeal to certain kinds of people a lot more than some others do. So I think, I don't know, I it's hard to say why something happens the way that it does. But as we're going to see when we talk about their basic beliefs here in just a little bit, and also some of the basic roots of this movement, it is coming out of movements that were also very popular, you know, 100, 150 years ago which is going to contribute very greatly to its popularity today, right? Sure, certainly. So what would you say are the basic beliefs of Pentecostalism, Willie? This is a little bit difficult to answer simply because there is a large umbrella under the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. So I'm going to try to hit really just the the broad strokes on this. So broadly speaking, they're going to be evangelical. What do you mean by evangelical? We're talking not about the original Reformation era definition, <laughs> but right. rather sort of the more revivalistic, very evangelism oriented style. So they do believe in, well, see, that even gets tricky. Okay. So they're, to say, do they believe in justification by faith alone? For the most part, yeah. They are very much into evangelism and, and that kind of gospel approach to, Winning souls, as they would put it. Right. That okay working definition for modern evangelicalism? I I think so. I mean, because otherwise you're going to spend so much time. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, look, for a lot of people, evangelical is synonymous with like Christian right republicanism. With other people, the word evangelical simply means Lutheran in, in a certain context. For others, it means Billy Graham. And so that that word becomes tricky. But we'll say that there are people who are, are very much into evangelism and and what it looks like typically in a modern American context. Right. Right. So, um, beyond that, you have a belief in the inspiration of Scripture, meaning that it is divinely inspired by God, which is something we could agree with. Right. They also believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which is something I hope that we can agree with, although I know our some of the more clever people in our circle would would uh, eschew that that label but <laughs> but it is a fact dear listener that the bible is without error right so flee the lutheran who says it isn't but i'm just a fundamentalist Selwyn. what do i know <laughs> it's a good feel fam it's a good yeah, feel in a weird age you know we're like we're more scared of being called a fundamentalist you know it's like i don't want to appear uncool i'm a lutheran i'm really cool so don't call me a fundamentalist, even though I believe in the fundamentals. Or a Protestant. Or a Protestant. Don't call me a Protestant. Don't call me a fundamentalist, even though historically all those could kind of apply, depending on the time you live in. And yeah, Catholic could apply too, before, you, before the keyboard warriors get too mad. History works that way. Labels have a way of changing over time. And, and so, you know, don't, don't jump on someone because they call you, you a Protestant. Okay, Lutheran. And, and don't jump on someone, a Lutheran, because they want to identify as Catholic either, for that matter. Just just calm down. Just calm down. But my point is, don't be afraid of when someone calls you a fundamentalist, because that doesn't mean anything. St- sticks and stones, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, it, it, it is actually kind of an indictment a little bit upon us that theology has become merely a form of virtue signaling. To a lot of us. So it's like, oh, well, no. Well, actually, Lutheran's an inerrancy. What is inerrancy? What does that mean? It means the Bible's without error, you you goof. That's what it means. It means God doesn't make mistakes and that God is more clever than you. Okay? So when your reason disagrees with God's word, you're in fact wrong and you're not cute and God isn't pleased. So I'll I'll end on the law there. But, I mean, come on. Do we really? That's what we argue about. That's what we argue about here. Now, it's going to seem it's that's going to seem kind of quaint, though, as we move on in this episode and see what the Pente- where the Pentecostals split, 
and what they argue about. But but nevertheless, I just want to get that point out, and it's something we, we come across often here at Word Fitly Spoken. Everybody just calm down a bit, and let's work on our definitions, and let's not be clever. Let's just be historical Christians if we can. Very good. Lutheran Christians. So. <laughs> All right. So they believe in inspiration and inerrancy, which is to say they believe in the Bible. All right. Next, they are going to be almost exclusively Arminian. Now, nowadays, you'll have some of these neo-reformed Calvinist charismatics, but they're neither reformed nor Calvinistic if they're adopting these things, frankly. (laughs) But yet here we are. See, labels, man. They get confusing. But they're Arminian, and that is to say that they believe that salvation comes in part through an act of the will, that the will is free to whatever degree and through whatever process you want to put onto it to choose to believe in the gospel. This is in contrast to the Calvinistic system, which says that the will is bound and that man cannot choose. And I realize that we Lutherans believe in the bound will and that man cannot choose as well. But in these discussions, it's typically framed as Calvinist versus Arminian. Right, right. So the, the Pentecostals by, I mean, by far, uh, with the exception of someone like William Branham, who we're going to get into a little bit later, they are Arminian. And that makes sense because you're going to see where they came from, uh, their origins here in just a few minutes. All right, they're Arminian. And then, of course, the main thing about them would be the charismata, the so-called charismatic gifts, which would be something like tongues, divine healing, and other things. So the tongues is the big one. Speaking in unknown tongues as evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit. In Pentecostalism proper, they would say you've not really received the Holy Ghost until you speak in unknown tongues. When you see a church that says they're charismatic, they they actually don't take it that far. They believe that unknown tongues is a gift of the Spirit, but that it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, uh, say, unsaved or don't have the Holy Spirit. But tongues are the big one. Divine healing, the alleged gift of divine healing. Then you have other gifts that get much less press. You know, discernment. What would be another one? Uh, Discernment, uh, the ability to cast out demons, which might actually be part of healing. And all of this actually relates to their worship. So, for example, our worship services are basically what, Zelman? Can you just take us through, like, let's let's pretend we're all on page 15. (laughs) Not page five, right? <laughs> how does how does that um how how does a typical worship service for us go? Well, I mean, typical if you're beginning with like a hymn, for example, which is very common in Lutheran circles. But then we open with an invocation, you know, a very orderly kind of service, usually with some a confession and absolution, followed by the service of the word, which includes you know the reading of the the, the scriptures and all of those things. The inspired and inerrant scriptures. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> and then and then after the sermon, then, of course, you have the prayers, followed by the service of the sacrament in many congregations, which would then close and we'd go about our day. Yeah, there's a, a very set order. Nothing too ecstatic happens in our churches. There's not a lot of hooping and hollering. Usually. Right, usually. You, it's maybe at a bad voters' assembly. <laughs> Now, in a Pentecostal church, it's different. There's a very, very rough order of service, but typically it is at the whim of the preacher and possibly at at the whim of the manifestation of these gifts. So they would see it as the Holy Spirit coming down, giving people these tongues, these gifts of prophecy, things like that. A lot of time in these services, everybody's more or less doing their own thing. There will be a sermon where everyone's listening. You won't have the public reading of Scripture the way we do it, like actually from a lectern set readings. The reading of Scripture would be part of the sermon more than anything. But when it's time for music, people will often sing together, but other people might be running around the room. They might be speaking in tongues. Somebody might even storm the pulpit and claim to have a word from God. You just never know. And that's really how it happens. They believe that the Holy Spirit is visiting them individually, giving them new tongues and typically unknown languages. They believe that God is giving them new revelation by and large. 
usually specific revelation about a specific event, but sometimes they claim to receive new end times prophecy, for example, things like that. My question for these services, though, has always been this. Do their Bibles have places to write in the back? And when God gives them new revelation, do they write it down? (laughs) And I used to make that as a joke, but then I found out that does actually happen in some of these charismatic churches. Really? Yeah, they will. certain ones, probably more fringe ones, will actually write down certain revelations. And now we're over in Mormon territory. Well, I was going to make an, an Amana colony crack, but I, well, I can't really follow it up. That's actually more fun. You know, that's, that's, that's more fair for us, right? Uh, <laughs> tell us huh. a little about, yeah, for those who don't know, the Amana colonies. Well, now we're really getting far afield, but the that's Amana so colonies, well, they called them inspirationalists in their own time. And basically, they believed that they were receiving new revelations through specific prophets which were actually basically new scripture. And so when they were finally run out of Germany, they came over and settled in what is now Amana, Iowa, the Amana colonies, and continue their their worship services today. I don't know if they still have living prophets, but this is all pre-Pentecostalism. This is a different a different movement altogether. So Right. And you can still visit the Amana colonies. It's a tourist attraction there. Is it on I eighty or north of I eighty or just off? Uh, just off, I think. I can't yeah, remember. There you go. I think they have good ham there. And appliances, too. So Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah, see, everybody's got those little skeletons in the closet, right? <laughs> everybody's got the weird uncle. So we're here with Pentecostalism then. And we have this basic outline of, of what they believe. You'll notice something I left out was the Trinity. So they have all these other things in common, but unfortunately the Trinity is not one of them. Some Pentecostals are Trinitarian. I would even say the majority. However, there is a rather large minority of Pentecostals who do deny the Trinity. And they basically adopt a form of modalism. And there are many famous Pentecostals who, as far as I can tell, are modalists. Sure. And they're all they're all on public record, at least describing position closer to modalism. So right from the beginning of Pentecostalism, you see deviations from very you know the the foundations of our of our faith and it is easy to get stuck on tongues and we'll spend a lot of time on that too don't get me wrong but the real error comes when they just they they're chipping away at things like who god is <laughs> you know right right i mean a person can be under a kind of a prelist delusion over here praying in tongues okay but if they're at the same time denying the trinity okay we might, we might want to work on that one first <laughs> and then <laughs> then work on the tongues thing. Yeah, oneness Pentecostalism, uh, the modalist you were talking about, is actually prevalent enough that I've encountered them even here in North Dakota. So, I mean, it's not like this is a, a far-out fringe group. I mean, this is a substantial chunk of what we would call Pentecostalism. Well, yeah, back, back when I was still working in radio and not doing a free podcast, we... Um, <laughs> One of I worked the shift for a long time that they did a lot of religious programmings, and one of them was a oneness Pentecostal pastor and his wife who would come in. Very nice people, always very good to me. They didn't like when I wear shorts, though. You know, they were very strict when it came to that, but they were otherwise very, very sweet people. But you know, openly denied the Trinity. Hmm. puts a man puts a man in an awkward position. But hey, it was work, right? Right. That's the, there's an ethical question. Somebody blog about that. What are the ethics of broadcasting a non-trinitarian Christian radio program if you if if the on-air if the on-site engineer is actually a trinitarian Christian? Somebody has yet to write that paper. There's a CTQ article for you. <laughs> we'll get we'll get something out of it at least. Right. <laughs> so all right, well let's talk a little bit about the roots then. Um uh, because there are precursors to this. It didn't just pop up one day and Everyone was speaking in tongues, and Benny Hinn had a new jet. It had to have roots. So if there's one name, Zellin, that that we could um, begin to trace this through, who, who might that be? And when we mention this one name, it should be understood that he himself was not a Pentecostal. Correct. And that is uh, John Wesley. John um, Wesley. And really, really quick, we've got, you know, we've got several minutes left in this segment, but a bit of ground to cover. Who's John Wesley? 
John Wesley is one of those great, uh, giant figures within Christian history, um, coming out of the Church of England and the founder of what is now called Methodism. But Wesley is important not so much because of his work, which was gigantic. I mean, the man went everywhere and preached about six million times. But really, for our purposes today, it's one of his ideas that forms what is the, the first root of Pentecostalism, which is what is sometimes called a second work of grace, or I believe it's also called even in Wesley's time, entire sanctification. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Entire sanctification. Now, it seems Wesley believed in sanctification in two ways. One, the typical way we think of it as a gradual process, or many of us, you know, conceive of it. And then there's also what this is what we call the second work of grace, which is the idea that a man is at some point in time wholly justified, say when he comes to faith, and then somewhere down the line he could pray and receive the second work of grace, which would be entire sanctification. Right. Now we could argue that a justification in a sense a man is sanctified insofar as he is set apart for holy things right. or set apart you know by God. But what is meant by this is that a person is literally free from sin. Right. They they no longer sin. And to be fair to Wesley, Wesley himself did not believe that this was a common gift, nor did he believe that he himself possessed it. Right. He typically understood sanctification as this gradual growing in grace. Right. And, and that certain men may be gifted peculiarly with this second work. But it was not common at all. Right. In and Wesley's Wes thought. Right. And, and Wesley is not a haughty person by any means. I mean, you know, maybe with the whole August Top Lady controversy, but that's neither here nor there. The Whitfield controversy, but in the Whitfield, yeah, but he's not a man to really boast in his own sanctification so much. So Methodism takes hold in the United States of America in the nineteenth century. Well, I mean it's earlier than that, but it really begins to take the form that we know it in the nineteenth century because you'll have the Methodist Church, Methodist Episcopal Church. And then they really begin to highlight sanctification as a second work of grace. From that springs churches that literally are just are just called the Wesleyan Church. Have you ever seen a church that just said Wesleyan on the door, Zelman? Yeah, there's some here yeah. pretty close to me, yeah. actually. So. Fairly common. So the Wesleyan Church is just, it, it's a way of saying this is what we believe about sanctification for, for all intents and purposes. That becomes their something of their most distinct doctrine. And from there, we have what's called the holiness movement. So you go from Methodism, Wesleyanism, and holiness movement. And the holiness movement and Wesleyanism are so closely related, it's often simply called the Wesleyan holiness movement. So from there, we have the origins of modern Pentecostalism, because with very few exceptions, Every early Pentecostal founder comes out of the holiness movement. But it should be recognized, and this is maybe something to emphasize before we go into our break, is that holiness and Pentecostalism are not identical terms. These are no, not. And we will, we will get into that. Um, as a matter of fact, like other holiness bodies, so you've got Holiness Wesleyan, the Church of the Nazarene. Right. Some of these early holiness churches would actually have something like Pentecostal in the name. But it but it predates Pentecostalism, so they have to go and change their name, or something like that. You, you'll you'll find you'll find that the, these examples where wait a minute we we're not associated with this, even though historically we're related. We want to be we want to distance ourselves from it. But really, the thing to highlight is the reason it grows out of it is because they believe in a special work of the Spirit. Okay, so you have. Someone who is converted, that's your first work of grace, okay, God's grace. In their mind, you have a second work of grace, which means you are entirely freed from sin, which would come from the Holy Spirit. So it shouldn't surprise us too much then that eventually some of their teachers would get this idea that there could be even more works of grace. And so you would come to that third work of grace, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're going to see early on. It's going to be first you're saved, you're justified, then you're sanctified. And once you're sanctified, you can receive the gift of the Holy 
spirit. And that's where you get the speaking in tongues and things like that. So the holiness movement, and we do plan maybe on doing a whole episode on just the holiness movement as we go on. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of good, or there's a lot of uh, interesting reading to do on the holiness movement. And also, if you just want to get kind of a Hollywood treatment of it, check out the 1997 film, The Apostle, starring Robert Duvall. It's a great movie, <laughs> and you'll kind of get an idea of what these holiness churches, churches are like. Well, we're at the first break. We'll be right back with more Pentecostalism right after this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zellin Heidi, talking the history of Pentecostalism. Zellin, you had one more point you wanted to make before the break? Yeah, and one the point that I wanted to make is, is when we're talking about entire sanctification and the second work of the Spirit, by the time we get down to Pentecostalism, at least in the early years, it's lost kind of the the entire sanctification feel that Wesley had, you know, Wesley kind of made it rare and, and, you know, it would be like a complete and a full thing so that one could even be said to cease to sin. But by the time you get down to the beginning of Pentecostalism proper, what you're dealing with is a definite, distinct sanctification occurring following conversion. So it no longer has a sense of like, it's perfect and nothing else can be added to it. It just becomes a second distinct work. And that's important because we're going to be talking about what is sometimes called a third work of grace and that you have to see that you can't, you can't accuse them of saying that all Pentecostals are somehow sinless. That's not fair to their movement, even in the early days. So we just have to see how that's kind of shifted even from where it began in Wesleyanism. Right. And when we say work, what they mean is a work of God on the person. Right. It's not something that you get through personal striving or something like that. So, all right. So we've come up through Wesleyanism. We're at the holiness movement. So should we talk about the origins of Pentecostal proper, where we can first start to talk about what we understand as Pentecostals? Yeah. And of course, the everyone wants to jump to, and we'll get to what is called Azusa Street, the Azusa Street Revival. But before we get there, we have to see where... Seymour, for example, the leader of that revival, where he gets his ideas from. And and who was that individual, Willie? That is Charles Fox Parham. Now, I've never actually heard his name said out loud, so I'm assuming it's pronounced Parham. It could be Parham. (laughs) I mean, he's over in in, uh, Kansas, so they say things weird there sometimes, I guess. But... And he's born in Iowa, so who knows? Born in Muscatine. So if anybody in Muscatine is a Parham, tell me how you say your name. But... (laughs) P-A-R-H-A-M, Charles Parham, is the person who comes to the idea that speaking in tongues is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the initial evidence of. So him and William Seymour are the two main figures in the development of American Pentecostalism. And And before Parham... The idea, I mean, tongues was one of the evidences, and I think maybe it was kind of starting to gain traction that it could be, you know, the sign. But there was always kind of a, it, it was only one possibility among others. You know, 
the other signs could also be signs that you had received the, sec- the second work of grace of God working on you. But it is Parham in particular who says, no, it is glossolalia. It is the speaking in tongues in particular that is the evidence of this, of this right. work. And glossolalia is the, the sort of academic term for the speaking in tongues. Right. If, and we'll use it several times here. And basically... You have Parham, who's working previously with the Methodist Episcopal Church. He doesn't like the church hierarchy, so he leaves it. That's always interesting when that happens. <laughs> he begins to do things like renounce all medical help, so he's preaching divine healing. And because of some events that he went through, and we're kind of running through him a little bit quickly, but what happens is eventually there's a watch night service, which is a late night church service that you would have at, at holiness churches and things like that, typically on uh, New Year's Eve. So December 31st, 1900, they're there for prayer and worship. On January 1st, 1901, the evening of January 1st, there's a worship service. A Miss Oseman feels impressed to ask the Holy Spirit to fill her fully, or to rather receive the Holy Spirit in full. And she begins to speak in what they call tongues. Now, when she is speaking in tongues, they believe they are hearing an actual language, a worldly language, an earthly language, a a tongue that people would actually speak. And this is an important thing to remember. So this is the first time that the gift of, of tongues is going to be seen in, in what's going to come to be known as Pentecostal church. The Holy Spirit is said to descend on this person, and they began to speak in known languages. Thus far, we're closer to Acts 2 than we're ever going to get, uh, at least in this historical episode. Now, what begins to happen from there? Well, the press picks up on this. Parham already has a controversial reputation. He's known for being rather forward, even even rude. He's trying to get his Christian school off the ground, his, his Bible college. So he's working on this. He's aggressive. Stories about this lady speaking in tongues come out. Soon other students begin to speak in tongues, and newspapers actually pick this up. Now, this is January 1, 1901. Uh, you can guess what uh, some of the epithets thrown at him were in his school. If you're going to use one biblical allusion to make fun of him, what would you do? You'd call it the Tower of Babel. Right. So, <laughs> But get this. By, ni- by April of 1901, so it starts in January, the tongues. By April of 1901, his ministry is over. It's dissolved. Hmm. School's defunct. Hmm. So around 1903, 1904, his fortunes turn. And so he begins to gain a greater following. He's claiming to convert many people over toward him. And it's around this time that he meets a black minister by the name of William Seymour, who accepts his doctrine, his Pentecostal doctrine, and that's in Houston, Texas. And I call him a minister. I'm not sure if he's ordained at the time, but I believe that he is. Okay. All right. So, so Seymour is, a, is the man who's going to start the Azusa Street Revival. But we don't want to get there just yet because you have a lot of this going on. So Parham's ministry expands. People start adopting this idea of tongues as the initial evidence of receiving the Holy Spirit. So in 1906, you have the Assembly of the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Okay, so that's the first meeting of the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. So arguably the earliest extant Pentecostal denomination that predates Azusa Street. But what is the difference in the tongues at this point? Well, it wasn't what it was like you emphasize is that they believe them to be actual languages. This is not a heavenly unknown kind of the way that we usually associate them today with Pentecostalism, but a belief that they actually spoke Russian or Chinese or whatever language it was that they were claiming to be able to speak, right? Correct. So there's the early rumblings. Now it's spreading, it's spreading, it's spreading. Eventually we get to Los Angeles, California. Can anything good come from Los Angeles? <laughs> and our subscribers went to That's zero. Right. But. So April 9th, 1906 is historically the, the beginning of what is called the Azusa Street Revival led by William J. Seymour. Now, this is a relatively small congregation. Okay, and it never numbers more than 50 or so people. And yet it is alleged that thousands come to participate in these worship services. 
And what you have at Azusa Street are are supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. People are shaking. They are rocking back and forth. They're dancing. They're walking across pews. They're doing all kinds of things. If you listen to our Second Great Awakening episode, this should all sound very similar to you because that sounds just like Cane Ridge Revival or the Great Revival or a lot of the other meetings of that era. People are getting worked up into an emotional frenzy here at Azusa Street, but news is going out. People are coming, they are seeing this, and they are carrying it back to their villages, cities, and churches. Didn't Seymour himself have his head in a box or something like that? Are you I thinking, remember- are we back to Joseph Smith? No. <laughs> No, I thought I thought he preached with his head in a box or something like that. But he may have at one point. I don't exactly recall that. But you have to realize that Azusa Street lasts from 1906 to roughly 1915, probably right. peaks in 1909, and it's almost every day. So you've really got to you got to you got to think outside the box. No pun intended. <laughs> to um, well, and like, I was actually going to mention that next is that we shouldn't think of this as like a one time, like that one night and that kind of had this huge impact. No, it was this ongoing, continual thing that was visited, like you said, by thousands and thousands of people that then took that influence elsewhere. That yeah. is really, so really if, driving home. The if point. we just start from uh, Azusa Street in 1906, you have the, and then the founding of Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, by 1908, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, officially accepts Pentecostalism. So there's a two-year gap. But in that short two years, the the theology from Azusa Street has gone out. So you have Pentecostal meetings in Oslo and Scandinavia and England. It goes into Italy by 1909 and into South America in the same year. And then, you know, you get on into like the Berlin Declaration, things like that. But it takes on a different flavor in Azusa Street. Now tongues are no longer taught as known languages with the purpose of evangelism. That was Parham's thing, that people were going to receive this gift of tongues, and then they would go out and evangelize. Kind of left that important part out of Charles Fox Parham's ministry. So you would be a student, okay? So you're going to Charles Fox's Bible College, Bethel Bible College. You receive the gift of tongues. You you think, you know, Italian. So you, they send you to Little Italy in New York to be a missionary, and you just start speaking in what you think is Italian. How, how do you think that went over? Uh, <laughs> charitably, not well. Right. And it doesn't. And, and, and very quickly, the students become disillusioned. But this is the thing with religious experience. And this is the thing with kind of a prelist error is that, I mean, a spiritual delusion, is that you actually do believe in what's happening. Through the power of suggestion, perhaps, but the people who have these experiences actually believe that it's legitimate. So if this person believed that they received this new tongue, whatever it was, they learned, you know, the Holy Ghost made them speak German. Then they go, and their faith is utterly shattered because no one can understand what they're saying because it's not a legitimate gift. That it's it's no surprise that people begin to to fall away from him. It's interesting. That's really what does it. Uh, he he has a Parham has other controversial views. British Israeliism, for one thing, he believed that white men were created on the eighth day, and everybody else created before. And so that kind of makes him look like a kook. But what really hurts him is is this idea that uh, we would go out and evangelize with the gift of tongues, and it doesn't it doesn't work. Nevertheless, the experience is so powerful that tongues are going to carry over into Azusa Street, but now they're going to be defined not simply as known languages, but they're going to be an unknown heavenly language that only you can understand, although there could be an interpreter there. And an interpreter who received the gift of interpretation from the Holy Spirit could, in theory, interpret for you. So this quickly evolves into two or three different kinds of tongues, known languages, a private, uh, or excuse me, a language, a heavenly language that you need an interpreter for, and then finally, and most significantly, a private prayer language that needs no interpretation. Right, and it sh- and it should be mentioned too that all three of these existed at Azusa. It wasn't like it was just one exclusively. Correct. Correct. There was still claiming there were people still claiming to speak known languages at Azusa as well. Correct, correct. Azusa is also notable for being interracial. There are whites and blacks and Hispanics meeting together, which is a bit novel at the time. So Parham comes to visit Azusa Street 
to see what his old student William Seymour is up to. And he sees what's going on and he doesn't like it. Parham sees the, or hear, he hears the cacophony. He sees the dancing and the writhing and all of these other supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit and denounces it as not of God. He also objects to the fact that they are that they are meeting blacks and whites together. So he says that both of these things are wrong. You shouldn't be worshiping in a disorderly manner. This is not what the Holy Ghost wants. And also, segregation is good. And unfortunately, the history tends to focus more on that. But but I, but you can't really separate Parham's doctrine from his racial views because they're they're related. But at the same time, they ultimately split over things like tongues too. So it's not merely right. a racial thing as it's sometimes as it's sometimes portrayed. Okay. So Parham and Seymour split. Parham actually takes a group of followers from Azusa Street and founds a church not too far. Nothing much really becomes of that. And Parham, you know, he dies uh, relatively young at age 55 in 1929. Kind of his his ministry sort of ends in scandal, and we don't need to get into all of that. But Parham is, it's a sad story the way it goes. He just has uh, failure after failure and conflict after conflict, and he gets into legal trouble and dies young. Seymour actually even has, he even dies young. He dies at age uh, 52, and I believe he actually dies before Parham. I think Parham lives till 29, and Seymour dies in, in 22. And actually, hmm. there's an error there. Parham dies at 55, rather. And okay. Seymour and Seymour dies at uh, fifty-two. But you know, if you're taking notes, uh, eventually, <laughs> though, a white minister named William Durham becomes sort of the number two guy at Azusa Street, and eventually, him and Seymour split over their understanding of sanctification. Seymour is still going to hold to the idea of entire sanctification as a second work of grace. Durham's going to kind of understand sanctification more as something that begins at conversion and you gradually grow in it, which is probably where the majority of charismatic churches are today. seems like we're splitting hairs a little bit here, but it is a very important distinction. And they butt heads over that and pretty much anathematize each other. Well, and it's it's an important distinction because when you're dealing with modern Pentecostal groups, you're not really going to encounter very many of them that are going to even talk in terms of like second or third works of, of grace. You know, this is historically, this is language that's true of them, but it's something that is kind of shift, they've shifted away from and perhaps in because of Durham's influence, right? Certainly. And I think it's important, though, for us to notice this that it's it, there might be some ego conflicts going on, but the early Pentecostal divisions have to do with doctrine. They're very much concerned about doctrine, which is a very different character from a lot of modern Pentecostalism, which is very much ecumenical and not concerned with this. Early Pentecostalism is very much about unity and doctrine, which I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, they deviate from historic Christian doctrine, but they they want unity. Now, it's hard to have unity, though, when every man is claiming his own novel interpretation. You take someone like Parham, who is uh, an annihilationist, and he has his other views about creation and things like that. Uh, you're, you're going to get into this more and more as it goes on, some very, very novel doctrines that are adopted. And the only thing I didn't cover is I don't know what the weather was <laughs> in those few years, but we'll need to find that out. Someone get out the old almanac. <laughs> We'll figure it out the hard way. So it wasn't as thorough as as, as I wanted. Now, oh, that's fine. Now the next thing, though, that and that's going to be important to the Pentecostalism after Azusa Street. So we have tongues established. We have ecstatic worship, and I would add that Azusa Street is all a cappella worship, no instruments. Hmm. So you can be Pentecostal and not have a, a drum kit or or a piano. Now. The next component, though, is going to be faith healing. You have the roots of it in Parham. You have faith healing going back since time immemorial. That's nothing new. But it's going to come to be heavily tied to Pentecostalism. And one notable person who is sometimes forgotten in these circles but is very influential is a a British evangelist named Smith Wigglesworth. And he's not the host of a children's show. (laughs) Exactly. He's a great popularizer of faith healing. 
And he's really rather rough and violent with the people. He'll punch you in the chest. You know, he'll knock you down. Things that you see carried on into the modern day. And an interesting thing about Smith Wigglesworth was very famous in his time. He writes books and he would not attempt to heal you more than once. Hmm. If you came to him for healing and you were not healed, what do you think he told you? It was God's will. No, if only, if only. (laughs) Or that you had no faith. (laughs) You had no faith. Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to say it's God's will. He's going to say your faith was insufficient. And the fact that you weren't healed the first time I tried to heal you, then you didn't have enough faith. Leave me alone. (laughs) I was trying to be charitable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so, but this idea creeps into Pentecostalism very early on from men like him. The idea that you're not healed, not because it's the will of God to put you through trials and tribulations, but because your faith is insufficient. That if you just could believe hard enough, it would have happened. Because I don't make a mistake as a faith healer, and God certainly doesn't make mistakes, so it's all on you, buddy. Sorry about your rheumatism. And so that's Smith Wigglesworth. Well, we're coming up on the second break. On the other side, we're going to talk about Pentecostalism and its growth all the way up to today. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, talking the history of Pentecostalism. We got through those early days, the really foundational days of Pentecostalism, and things are going to move really rather fast from here. But Zelwyn, there is something important that we have to discuss before we move on from Azusa Street and the early founders. And what is that? Well, I suppose that would be the reaction that many of these other groups, like the holiness movements and also the rise of fundamentalism, had against Pentecostalism. And frankly, the reaction was fairly negative. Almost universally negative, especially from fundamentalists and even from historic holiness denominations. We mentioned earlier the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene, one of the largest holiness groups, very much opposed to the new Pentecostal movement. And so to avoid confusion, in 1919, it changes its name to the Church of the Nazarene. So they don't want to be associated with that. But the fundamentalists are very much against this. And why might that be? Well, I suppose because they're all the new doctrines that are the Pentecostalism is, is introducing and fundamentalism trying to combat the modernism, a uh, modernist Correct. movement uh, is trying to emphasize orthodox doctrine. So... Right, yeah, the fundamentalists are finding uh, people who are trying to chip away at the Bible, and then the Pentecostals come around, and they really see them as adding to the Bible or corrupting what is there. So while the Pentecostals believe in the Bible, their application of it and approach to it are, are far different from the fundamentalists. Now, the mainline churches at this time are also going to reject it. Your Anglicans, your Lutherans, Presbyterians even Methodists. They are not going to want to be a part of this. But that's going to change rather quickly as things move on. But Pentecostalism today is pretty much mainstream, or the charismatic church is mainstream. I think a lot of people on the outside looking in see it as very strange still, but nevertheless, as far as in the Christian world, you cannot say it's uncommon. At this time, though, very, very novel, very different. And religious memory appears to be rather short, because you're 100, 
or so or probably less actually you're less than a hundred years removed from the second great awakening, but the memory of Cane Ridge and other other big revivals that demonstrated similar what what, what phenomenon I guess we'll say. The, the institutional memory is not that long, so people have kind of forgotten this. So they think that they're, that they're seeing some unprecedented move in history. And for the Pentecostals, they really believe that this is a second Pentecost that's happening. They see in themselves a manifestation of the same thing that was happening in the early chapters of Acts. And that is a very powerful drink of water. So Parham for example, very much wants his his movement to mirror more closely what is seen in Acts. That's why he wants known languages and things like that. That's part of the reason he goes against Seymour at Azusa Street. And I am not painting Parham as a good guy or a good teacher at all when I say this. <laughs> I'm simply highlighting how quickly the movement starts to divide. But also, as it divides, it begins to take its more solid form. There's always going to be these factions that break off, but nevertheless, very early on, these fundamentals of Pentecostalism are laid down. It's very new, very novel, and the broader Christian church does reject it. And not only for the tongues and not only for the worship, but frankly, for their deviations from historic doctrines like the Trinity and things like that. Because you have noticeably large pockets of Pentecostalism denying the divinity of Christ or denying the Trinity. And so they see it for what it is, and they reject it. Nevertheless, it begins to grow. Now, why does it grow? Well, Parham actually says this very early on, that what you're doing, getting these people to speak in these languages, is nothing more than suggestion or hypnotism. And even though even though Parham is a false teacher, and that Pentecostals out there, you're going to have to agree with this, right? I mean, he he doesn't believe in hell. He's got all kinds of kooky stuff going on. I do think he's on to something when he talks about suggestion and, and hypnosis. When we're dealing with Pentecostalism, what we're dealing with is experiential religion. And that makes discernment difficult. It's kind of like memory in general, right? Memory can be a little bit deceiving. Have you ever heard someone tell a story and then another person in the room tell the same story? And the two stories didn't agree. Or with your own memory and trying to recall something like, you know, historic. Absolutely. Right. That's why we use notes here, because <laughs> we will forget. Well, it's easy when it comes to our perception of what's real. So we do need discernment. But it's also very easy to change people's perception or to make them think something has happened. So if I can convince you that this experience is real, it's going to be very hard to change your mind. And we have an early generation of Pentecostalism here right now in our discussion, but we are now living several generations into Pentecostalism where people are born into it, and that's the only spirituality that they know. And that's a difficult thing to break. If you believe that these certain feelings are actual workings of the Holy Spirit, and and that they will give you new tongues or something like that or a private prayer language, then that's going to be a very hard conditioning to break. So even though there's opposition from traditional Christianity, Pentecostals are going to win some significant media victories in a number of ways. You're going to have someone like Amy McPherson, who is really going to popularize Pentecostalism. She's actually a disciple of William Durham, who you remember from the last segment as being the number two guy at Azusa Street. She's going to be a disciple of him. She's immediately going to be recognized as a person who can eloquently interpret unknown tongues. And so she begins evangelizing and holding revivals all up and down the old sawdust trail. And people are really, really coming to her, but she has a very demanding stage presence. And this is where the performance aspect of revivalism starts to show up again. And really in its more modern form that we know from televangelists and things like that. I think it finds its roots in Amy Simple McPherson. She's going to have her Angelus Temple in 1923 dedicated and interdenominational, she calls it, temple that she builds. She does a lot of charity work. You know, her legacy today is the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. I think that's the full name, the Four Square Church. Um, right. The International Church of the Four Square Gospel, founded in 1923, 
8 million members worldwide in many countries, tens of thousands of churches. But she's a very early celebrity, although she does have the things that come with celebrity. Her life is filled with scandal. She does have a difficult life. But it doesn't seem to to change her image in the eyes of her followers. And that's something you're going to see a lot in the charismatic movement, that scandal and vice do not change the way that they perceive their teachers by and large. Scandal virtually ends Parham's ministry, but by the time you get into the 50s and 60s, and certainly by the 80s, it doesn't have too great of an effect, except in extremely egregious cases or notable cases like uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and things like that. I was just about to say the the tears of Tammy Faye, but... Right. Yeah, I mean, it, you have exceptions. Um <laughs> And there's a lesson for all of us here who tend toward hero worship. We need to be careful. One, all men are sinners, and the only person to do worship is our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, you know, we who are leaders could fall into sin. And third, our leaders should be accountable, and we should be accountable to one another. A lot of these ministries come to be known by the names of the people who found them. Right, so you'll end up with Oral Roberts Ministries or something like that, right? And it's you're treading on dangerous territory when you're building something around the man, and that is not a Pentecostal problem alone. That's something that can that can affect all of us, and we want to be very careful. You know, when it's www.somebody'spropername.com or somebody's proper name Ministries Inc., you're already on shaky ground right there. Be careful. Because you can fall, we can we can talk about Jim Baker and Tammy Faye or Jimmy Swaggart, but any 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 man in a pulpit may may well find himself self in that same position if he is not careful. So maybe the Pentecostal should have adopted confession and absolution. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or spiritual directors, if you will. All right. So moving on. So Amy McPherson, and she's big in media. She's She's savvy when it comes to that. On the other side, you have the big tent revivals happening, just like she was doing too, and they're going all all throughout the Bible Belt and really, frankly, all across the country. And that's how these people initially build their ministries through these big through these big revivals. Now, what's starting to happen in the forties, especially in the fifties, is the great joining of healing and tongues. Now, you have healing and tongues together at Azusa Street. But the big healing crusades that you saw early on with Smith Wigglesworth started to become the norm with a lot of Pentecostal preachers. So that's where you get men like uh, William Branham and men like Oral Roberts. Oral Roberts is very famous, died about 10 years ago, maybe the most famous Oklahoman of the modern era. And he's the guy who really emphasized things like seed faith. Uh, what do, do, if I just if I just told you the term seed faith? What might that make you think in the context of Pentecostal preachers? You give a seed, and that's going to increase, like usually in a financial form. Is that what you're right? It's to? it's yeah, it's basically the early prosperity gospel, right? But that's all tied to it. But where does he find his roots? Early Pentecostalism and healing. Uh, <laughs> it's a notable thing. They would have these big healing crusades, and you'll notice that when they're healing people, it's often pain internal pain, things you can't really see. <laughs> Convenient. You know, and it goes back to Wigglesworth and other people. They'll claim to raise the dead, so somebody will be dead, and then they'll carry them backstage, and they'll come running back out. Oh, hey, they're alive again. Um, I don't deny that God can heal. I don't deny that God can raise the dead, because I still go to church on Easter. But this is not the healing of the New Testament, listeners. Malchus's ear is not being reattached at one of these healing crusades. Eutyche is not being raised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the people who, who are being raised from the dead don't stink. You know, it's not been a few days. One notable event, I believe it was in the 50s, might have been the late 40s, where Oral Roberts is holding a big healing crusade and a, a big Texas storm or whatever rolls in and destroys the tent and 50 people are injured. And guess where they went? To have their injuries fixed. <laughs> not Oral Robert. <laughs> they went to the hospital. And I'm not demeaning the people who do this, because people who are in pain want a relief from pain. And they cry out to God for relief, 
as they should. And I, and I absolutely understand that. And I am empathize with that, but, but these men are not doing what God has commanded them to do in preaching the gospel and being faithful to the scriptures. If I may be so blunt, you have early associates of Oral Roberts, a man named William Branham, who's an interesting character. He dies young at the age of 56 in 1965, born in Kentucky, dies in Texas. Seems to be a pretty common theme in American history. His evangelistic association, I believe, is still is still around. I'm not sure how close they follow his his teachings, but he did believe in divine healing. He believed in annihilationism, uh, along with Charles Fox Parham, the idea that the damned will eventually be, just be annihilated. They won't be tormented forev- forever. He had odd views on the Godhead, but he's sharing a stage with Oral Roberts. You know, the, Eventually, these people separate, but you see how very quickly doctrine starts to become not that big of a deal, even though a lot of Pentecostals pushed back against Branham for his basically tri-theist views. Hmm. Oddly enough, with Branham, he believed in predestination. <laughs> so he, he's kind of got some, he's an annihilationist, but he's got some Calvinism in him too. So it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, he's big into holiness of living, which is something, you know, you, that carries right through the holiness movement. You know, we forgot to mention Azusa Street and people splitting up over whether or not you could wear neckties and things like that. Th- that More than one holiness or Pentecostal group has had serious conflict over neckties. Right. Yeah, that that isn't just a Pentecostal problem. That's that true. That's bad. fair. That's fair. That's uh yeah, that, that is that is broad Christianity. Neckties <laughs> and, and, and ice for some reason. Now Branham, his most notorious doctrine was probably the serpent seed doctrine. He believed in an oh, allegorical interpretation of the fall of man, and basically the idea is that the serpent had sexual intercourse with Eve and that produced Cain. And that's and that's how you get the the, basically, the Pharisees being the literal brood of, of vipers. That's yeah, a literal saying. brood yeah. of vipers. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, the, it, that's an early. There's a Daniel Parker, maybe in the 1800s, a Baptist guy, I think, that holds to a similar view. And then you know, prophecies, things like that. So there's there's Branham, and that's basically your 50s, 60s style, 40s to 60s. Oh, it's just this is this is hilarious because you know we're talking trying to get into an hour and hopefully this has been beneficial for our listeners because we are coming up towards the end here but it just kind of goes to show what a giant topic pentecostalism is and how it's very difficult to actually pin it down to any one thing in particular right um, right when you're when you're talking about annihilationism and you know, anti-immodalism and serpent sure. seed doctrines. And it's just like, this is all under the tent of Pentecostalism. This is a giant topic. <laughs> exactly. So with that said, <laughs> let me lightning round a few things here at the end. Okay. <laughs> so by the 50s, fundamentalists are still at odds with Pentecostalism. They still reject it. But the Pentecostals grow in influence, and they're, and they're part of the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals. From here, we start to see Pentecostalism go into virtually all denominations, Protestant, Catholic, or whatever in between, whatever label you and your internet social group want to put on yourself, uh, Pentecostals come into it. So there's a Catholic Pentecostal movement that still exists. Charismatic Catholics are still a thing. The Presbyterians, and even, yes, the Lutherans. If you dig around enough old Lutheran bookshelves, you're going to find books especially from the 70s about lutherans speaking in tongues and it effe- and it infected even missouri synod churches and split more than one missouri synod church the idea that uh, the, the idea is espoused by the charismatic movement and for many of us missouri synod people especially that idea that we would be speaking in tongues or worshiping like pentecostals seems very foreign but it was actually making headway at least up until the 70s I don't know if, if you were aware of that, Zellin. Um, no, I no, I was. Yeah. I mean, our set forms, for example, that pastors yeah, have to fill there out. There you go. Exactly. I have a question about charismaticism. So, it was a live issue, perhaps more in the past than it is today. I mean, although that's debatable, of course. Yeah, although, but, and, and see, here's the thing, though: we're a long way from Azusa Street with only a cappella worship. The um, right prayer postures that a lot of our worship has assumed. Even the way we hold our hands, the eye closing, the the purpose of music in worship 
has unfortunately been adopted by even Lutheran congregations. But we can debate the validity of that or not, but it does very much go back to the old, to the healing crusades or even to Azusa Street where these methods put you in a state of mind to worship, as they would say, and put you in a mood for worship. And once we're talking about mood, I'm already a little bit nervous. So now you're, you will even see Lutheran congregations that, that are virtually indistinguishable from a charismatic congregation with regard to worship. And then we have to ask the question that we can't answer in this podcast is, can you separate doctrine from worship? Can you separate doctrine from practice? I mean, that, that is a rhetorical question, by the way. I, you, you know right. the answer. <laughs> but it, it has certainly come into all corners of Christendom now. Not just the do- not 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 always explicitly the beliefs, but the techniques. Right. And I think, frankly, the techniques lead to the beliefs more than the other way around in this day and age. Because if you're seeking after the subjective, you're going to go to the teachers that will teach you how to get that. Right. That will instruct you how to get that. So, Zell, in the last couple of minutes, I'll give you the last word here. What should we take away from this? Should there be any cautions? Should there be an embrace of what we've talked about here? What do you think? How do you feel about the serpent's seed? No, sorry. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I've actually encountered that personally. But oh my! when we're dealing with something as multifaceted as Pentecostalism, it's not going to do us any good to try to paint it all with a single brush and, and assume that we've somehow dealt with the problem. We need to really take the time, at least, to seriously consider what it is that Pentecostalism represents in our churches and to at least ask some of the questions that they're that they're wrestling with and try to find, you know, what would be a biblical, a Lutheran response to some of these so that we're not just, you know, shooting around in the dark trying to say this is what we think Pentecostalism is, because that's not going to help anything. The way to deal with these this, these winds blowing around in our churches is not to throw an epithet on it or not to just say, this is what I'm going to tell you they believe, but to actually deal with these problems head on so that we can actually, you know, figure it out and then find a, an appropriate and Lutheran response to them. Good stuff. And hey, you know, check us out. Go to the discussion group, send us an email or something if you want any clarifications or have any, any other questions. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless. The Pentecostal Revolution, which occurred in the Holiness Movement in 1906, came to the attention of the religious world through the reports of a sensational revival meeting in Los Angeles. The City of Angels was first told of the new movement in a report to the Los Angeles Times on April 18, 1906, under a headline proclaiming, Weird Babble of Tongues. The writer reported that, breathing strange utterances and mouthing a creed which it would seem no sane mortal could understand, The newest sect is started in Los Angeles.